Okay, you'll be in a, at an advantage if you turn to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, and also somewhere around Romans 5. I'm going to give you two vocabulary words at the start, because sometimes speakers assume that these words are known, and it becomes a blockade to people, like they're saying, what's he talking about, the whole message? So two, let's just say nomenclature for today's message. The first one antinomy this is a new one to me but i looked it up in my favorite dictionary the american heritage college dictionary fifth edition and antinomy means a contradiction or opposition especially between two laws or rules contradiction or opposition especially between two laws or rules and this is an enormously important interpretive point for two of Paul's most notable epistles, Romans and Galatians, this word. And it correlates with my theme, which is a dialectic of contradictories for note takers, in which there's an irreconcilable difference between two viewpoints, irreconcilable difference between two principles or two laws. The second word is metonymy. This might be a little more familiar to some of you. It's a figure of speech, metonymy. And again, the American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition. Preachers and future preachers, your next most important book to have next to you when you're studying next to the Bible is a dictionary. And that's very important. Metonymy. And a metonymy, by definition, is a figure of speech in which one word or phrase is substituted for another with which it is closely associated. I'll say that again. It's a figure of speech in which one word or phrase is substituted for another with which it is closely associated. Now, I believe that a metonymy usually is an abbreviated phrase or word that points to something far greater, far more significant. For example, they give a helpful example, in fact. They say, as in the use of Washington for the United States government, or, and this is a biblical one they give an example of, or the sword for military power. So we're talking about death by the sword in Revelation. We're talking about death by the sword in some of the prophets they're talking about. And Jesus mentioned death by the sword And in 2652 of Matthew, those who live by the sword shall die by the sword. It usually refers to something that is a far broader concept. Death by the sword then means death by military power in war or a violent death of some kind. The sword is the metonymy. And I just want you to be familiar with these two terms because almost historically, the message I'm teaching you today is revolutionary in the sense that it is recovering a truth that I think has been lost since the Reformation or even before that. There is an antinomy, especially Romans, let's call it Romans and Galatians especially. And I'm going to use this word, even though it's not really the best translation, I'm going to use the word justification. I'm setting you up for the teaching today. Justification, and there is an Antinomy, there's an ant- justification antinomy and in Paul's Romans and Galatians. 
And this sets up the radical difference and irreconcilable difference between two Gospels. Now, since the Reformation, the assumption was that there is a, an antinomy between justification by the works of the law and justification by faith. Both of these are human acts. Justification by the works of the law or by observance of Torah versus justification by faith. And so the assumption has been God either responds, and this is according to this teacher's gospel, the Jewish Christian teacher, God responds to a person's human action in observing Moses' law. And the Jewish teachers were teaching, okay, Christ is the Messiah. He did die for sins. But if pagans want to come into the fold, they have to be circumcised. The males have to be circumcised. And then they have to go into a strict observance of the Mosaic law, including the kosher laws of table fellowship, etc. So that when the Reformation came along, it says, well, there's an antinomy or a an opposition between justification by the works of the law versus justification by faith. But faith is also a human act. And so they said, no, instead, God responds to the human act of faith. And justification comes not through the works of the law, but by faith. That's a false antinomy. That's not what's being opposed Rather, the, the antinomy of the justification antinomy in Romans and Galatians is rather a divine act, which we'll call the Christ event. The Christ event includes his incarnation, his life of obedience, but it especially includes the climax of his obedience, which is his faithful death on Calvary, which is also followed by his burial and inevitably followed by his resurrection and his ascension. And all of that we call Christ's enthronement or the Christ event. The real antinomy is between a divine act of God in Christ and justification by the works of the law. Paul is not pitting justification by faith against justification by the works of the law. He's pitting the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection as the justifying power over against the human acts of justification by the works of the law. So this false antinomy has been existing in the church for a long time. That's why I said we're killing two birds with one stone. We're showing Paul in his action against and his defeat of the false gospel, but we're also showing the defeat of, I think, a false interpretation of Romans and Galatians, which makes justification by a human act of faith be that which God has to respond to. God has to respond to a human act of faith. In both of these, God is either responding to a human act of obedience to the law or an act of faith in Jesus Christ as, and rewarding that with, and he considers himself obligated to reward that with this thing called justification, which we're going to use. I'll use that today just for the sake of argument. It's not the best translation. Best translation is probably closer to a liberation and a transformation or even salvation. And so the antinomy, both in Romans and Galatians, is not between justification by faith versus justification by works 
or observance of the Torah or the Mosaic law. The antinomy is between a Torah of works or a teaching about works and a Torah or a teaching of faithfulness. You may not know it, but you have been handed over by God, and so have I. I have been handed over by God to a form of teaching, a certain system of didache or teaching. Romans 6.17, Paul says, you have been handed over to a certain form of teaching. That's the teaching I'm giving you today. It is the teaching of the justifying act of God in Christ, the justifying act of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, all of which constitute an enthronement. His enthronement began when he was lifted up on the cross. John makes that very clear in the Gospel of John, that his enthronement begins with his crucifixion, his being lifted up on the cross. And it includes his burial, includes his resurrection, his elevation to the right hand of the Father, and his sitting down. That's the enthronement of the Lamb of God, which we have at the heart of Paul's epistles, which we have at the heart of the book of Revelation, which we have at the heart of the Gospel of John, which we have at the heart of biblical revelation, period, over and out. And so Paul is teaching against justification by the works of the law. He doesn't present a paltry, pusillanimous version of the gospel as justification by faith. He says the the act that justifies is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the divine act of God in Christ over and against the human acts of men and women in observance of the law. I'm going to try to make this clear, and I think you'll see the climactic part of this come together in Galatians 2.20. So even though you're there, we may take a while to get up to it. So said another way, the antinomy or the radical contradiction is between justification by human works in observance of Torah and the Christ event itself, which is specifically the death of Jesus the Messiah, followed by his burial, resurrection, and ascension. I don't know if you know what I'm doing here, but I'm choosing not to communicate to you anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified, which all stopped at a certain point in church history when Jesus Christ was subtly sidelined by a gospel that accentuated human acts, including the human act of faith rather than the divine act of God in Christ and in Christ's faithfulness. That's what's coming into view. It's coming gradually, and I'm asking for a few months to be able to do this, as I said, maybe five or six months, probably four more now. In John's gospel, the enthronement of Messiah includes his crucifixion. So when we speak of his enthronement, we're talking about an event of his death, a death that he died during the faithful execution of obedience to a divine mission. And that's important. That death that he died is in the course of a faithful execution of the father's will, the father's intention. And we hit the ground running in John's gospel, not by starting with one, one, but by starting with three seventeen, the first divine mission. For God did not send his son on a mission into this world to condemn 
the world, but so that through him the world would be saved. God's intent is totally and completely salvific. The last word he utters is Jesus or Yeshua, and Yeshua means salvation personified. That's the word God utters. God has revealed himself in these last days in his son. God has revealed himself definitively in these days, not through creation, but through his son, through whom creation came and through whom redemption has come. And so this is not against Paul, who always sees the crucifixion in connection with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was handed over, says Paul, to death, handed over to death for our sins. Christ's death was occurred in the faithful execution of a divine mission and obedience to the divine initiative to save the world. And so he was looking to the Father as he died. When he screamed out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, a lot of things were happening right then. One, he was screaming out with the screaming creation. He was identifying wholly and completely with the groaning and screaming creation that is longing for liberation. And when he was liberated from death by resurrection, so was the screaming creation. And that includes all humankind. So again, in John's gospel, the enthronement of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, includes his crucifixion, notably. And this is not against Paul. John is not pitted against Paul. Pseudo-scholarship has tried to pit Paul against John and Jesus against Paul and Paul against Peter and Peter against Paul and you got to rob Peter to pay Paul and all the rest of it. It's nonsense. This is not against Paul who always and without exception sees the crucifixion in connection with and integrally linked with the resurrection of Jesus. Even when he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I determined to know nothing among you or communicate nothing to you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The tense of crucified there is Jesus Christ and him having been crucified with the understanding that he is now raised and though still bears the marks of his crucifixion. Paul portrayed Jesus Christ to the Galatians through preaching. He portrayed him vividly as being crucified, but also portrayed him visibly as being resurrected while still bearing the marks of his crucifixion. And so he said, how can you, if you've seen me portray Christ, if you've seen me portray Jesus Christ and him crucified as the source of your justification, how can you now be made perfect by works of the flesh? How foolish you are. And he basically said, can you really be that stupid? Can you really be that stupid? He marveled how they defected from that gospel. And he would marvel today that many of the so-called wonderful scholars and theologians of the Reformation also departed from that gospel. And so has a large section of the church. And I'm not quite as amazed at the peel-off that's happening now, but I'm going to show you some things about that today. Jesus was handed over to death for our sins, according to Romans 4.25, and resurrected for our 
justification. His resurrection is justifying. His resurrection is justifying. His resurrection was, in a sense, the father's reward to the son for his faithfulness to execute the mission that God sent him on, which was a world-saving mission. When, you're, when we're done with this, and it's going to take a while, you're going to start to see like angels see. You're going to see that already the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord and the heavens also. The angels see, and we will see some things also like angels see. Fact is, God sees things. So here, the Christ event is seen as the source and the means of our justification. Paul's argument against justification by the works of the law is not justification by human faith. It isn't pitting the human faith act against the human obedience to the law acts so that you can be sure of good marks on the judgment day when God unleashes his final wrath on disobedient people who didn't observe the law. Paul isn't pitting justification by faith against justification by the works of the law. He is pitting the Christ event as a justifying event over and against the human act of justification by the works of the law. Big difference there. And I think you're going to find if God gives you eyes to see this, I think you're going to find an insight that has been overlooked by all of us, but is now being found by the grace of God. Once you find this pearl of great price, you sell everything to buy it. This Christ event is often summarized again by metonymies. Here's a few examples. It's a figure of speech, remember, by which one word or phrase is substituted for another which it closely, with which it's closely associated. That is, often a word or phrase is substituted for the Christ event itself, which contemplates the whole Christ event. Faithfulness is one of them. The faithfulness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Faithfulness, or the phrase from the Greek, pistis Christu, the faithfulness of Christ, takes in and is a metonymy for the whole act of obedience, faithful obedience to the Father's intent, the Father's great intention to summarize everything in Christ, to restore all things, and to bring everything into a reconciled status, including angels. Every tongue will acknowledge. You say, do angels have tongues? In 1 Corinthians, they do. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love. Angels must have tongues, which means they have languages, which means they can express praise to God, which means all the angelic realm, principalities and powers, that have been reconciled to God through the peace made by the blood of his son's cross will be also faithfully, loyally, worshipfully acknowledging that Yeshua is Yahweh. And nobody says worshipfully, and genuinely that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Every tongue of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth will confess, will joyfully, praisefully acknowledge that Yahweh is Yeshua to the glory of God the Father. Do angels have tongues? Yes, every tongue. Angels, those in heaven, 
Those on earth, human beings. Those under the earth, dead human beings. Jesus both died and was revived that he might be Lord of the living and the dead. Romans 14.9. And that flows nicely into 14.11. Every tongue praising as Paul interprets it properly there. So the faithfulness of Christ is a metonymy for the Christ event, which is a faithfulness that led to death. So we could even say his faithful death. Faithfulness, or the phrase, the faithfulness of Christ. Another metonymy for this whole Christ event is obedience. The obedience of Christ. The obedience of the one man. More specifically, then, the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ. Again, here's the key passage, Romans 5, 19, which says that by his obedience, many became righteous. By the disobedient act of one, Adam, the many were constituted sinful. So by the obedience of the one, the many, the same many, were constituted sinful. Righteous or delivered or liberated or redeemed Romans five nineteen. So what is the metonymy for the Christ event or the whole event of Christ's incarnation faithful obedience climaxing in his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion followed by burial resurrection and enthronement or elevation and session all this is triggered by the word obedience. And that's an easy one because we actually have the link of his obedience or his faithful obedience being to the extent of death by crucifixion in Philippians 2.8. Having taken on the likeness of human flesh, he became obedient, taking on the form or the vocation of a slave. He became obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and that's the cross the death the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ so obedience is to the extent of death by crucifixion so when Paul says by one man's obedience it's speaking of the obedience of the one man Jesus Christ to the extent of death by crucifixion the many shall be constituted righteous or if you want to use the word let's do it for just for today justified in fact in Romans 518 this is Rapidly becoming what I don't have a favorite verse, but if I did, that might be it. Romans 5.18. There is the one righteous act of Jesus Christ, the dikaios of Jesus Christ, the one righteous act of Jesus Christ, a metonymy for his faithful obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and elevation and enthronement, all triggered by one word, the righteous act of Jesus Christ. The one righteous act of Jesus led to life-giving justification. And that, again, is an extremely important interpretation in Romans 5.18, where translations say justification unto life, or they say the justifying life or life-giving justification. It actually is the justification that is life. Paul had already spoken about this when he wasn't fighting about what the teacher was teaching in Ephesians. He wasn't, he didn't have an ax to grind with anybody. He just said, said when you were dead in sins, 
You were made alive with Christ, made alive, made alive. You were justified by being made alive with Christ's own life. For as in Adam all die, he says in his famous resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. So, or as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. For one died for all, then all died, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14. So again, the one righteous act of Jesus led to life-giving justification or the justification that consists of life from the dead. And then Paul says to everyone, what is the justifying factor? Faith in Jesus Christ or the faithful death of Jesus Christ followed by resurrection? I'm asking you, you can answer that yourself. There is also the metonymy of the blood of Christ that is employed for the Christ event. This is always a sticking point because this became a straw man for a lot of departures from the faith in the several years ago. About 70 walked out. I saw them walk out. It was interesting because of a misunderstanding. But there is a metonymy, which is simply the blood of Jesus Christ, or blood, that is employed for the Christ event. Specifically, obviously, his blood refers to his atoning death, but includes his resurrection. Peter's got the same idea. He said, we have been redeemed not by material riches like silver and gold, perishable riches, but by the precious blood as of a lamb without spot, the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ is employed for the Christ event. It's a metonymy, and it specifically refers to his atoning death, but also includes his resurrection. You can't separate the two. This is not to say that there are no references in the scriptures to his literal blood, which the fundies are always wanting to sprinkle around on their cars when they go on trips, blasphemously, I might add. It doesn't mean that his literal blood is somehow sidelined or has no significance, the blood that was in the veins of Jesus Christ. Where in John 19.34, John makes a reference to blood and water emitting from the chest cavity of Jesus Christ, which was an indication that his physical death had already occurred. And therefore, there is a great significance to his literal and physical blood. And we're never, say, never said that that's not the case. But the word blood of Christ is merely used to denote the entirety of his redemptive and justifying act in the Christ event. For example, let me look at the, you can look at this with me if you want a little bit of an advantage in Romans 3.25. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. In Romans 3.25, speaking of Christ Jesus, please notice, speaking of Christ Jesus, after the famous Romans road, all have sinned. First step is to admit your sin and then be remorseful and very sorry for it because as sorry as you get, God will be gracious to you. And so you better be sorry enough and you better believe enough and your faith better be strong enough and it better be authentic and real because if you backslide after, we're going to say that you never really believed in the first place. This is all going on in the little sandbox of pretend Christianity today. But anyways, I say sandbox because it's the place where people build their houses on sand, which is justification by human act of faith. That's sand. 
It crashes and it burns. When the floods come, and they do come, when the winds come, and they're coming, and they will come. But Romans 3.25, speaking of Christ Jesus in 3.24, in which he says, all sinned in 3.23, and keep on lacking the glory of God, being justified by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified by what? The, the grace of God, his totally gracious act, salvific act toward you through the redemptive act of Christ, his death. This Christ Jesus in verse 25 says, whom God displayed publicly as the mercy seat, referring to the mercy seat on the cover of the ark that covered the sins of Israel through the faithfulness of his blood, which we could even translate as by his faithful death. Paul is speaking here. It's a tough translation call, but that's exactly what it should say. By his faithful death, the act of God in Christ is the justifying act. Again, Romans 3.25, Christ Jesus from 24, whom God displayed publicly, that's his crucifixion, as the mercy seat or the propitiation through the faithfulness of his blood. It does not say through faith in his blood, which strains at a gnat, try to really strain because we already believe in justification by faith. So we got to make the scripture say justification by faith. It's talking about the faithful death of the son of God as being the justifying power. Now, in this passage, both faithfulness and blood come together. Both faithfulness and blood come together. Two metonymies to show that his blood or his atoning death for sins was faithful. It was blood shed, we could say, during the action which Jesus Christ took for our salvation. It was a mission that was going to involve his death, which he gladly took that mission. It was going to also end in resurrection. So in this passage, Romans 3.25, I'm going to show you a more deadly passage against the justification by faith theory in a minute. In this passage, both faithfulness and blood come together to show that his blood or his atoning death for sins was faithful. It was blood shed during an action that he took faithfully for our salvation. This also is attracted back to Philippians 2.8 where his obedience is connected with death by crucifixion, showing that Jesus Christ's death occurred in the performance of a divine mission and his accomplishment of that divine mission, at the end of which he cried out to tell us that. What was finished was a mission accomplished, and the mission for the salvation of the world through him. He became the propitiation for the sins, not for our sins only, for the sins of the whole world. Not for the sins of the Jews only, so that the pagans have to come in by circumcision and also obedience to the law. No, propitiation for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. So, death by crucifixion shows that his death occurred in the performance of a divine mission the mission by which the world was to be saved through him. John 3.17, remember the fourth G. It connects to where we're doing now. 
Our salvation or our purchase from enslavement to sin and its consequences was costly. You've been bought with a price, Paul said, so continue in sin that grace may come. No. Do we continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies that now belong to God. And since your bodies now belong to God, don't you think you ought to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God? Well, that's Romans 12.1. Coming up someday. We were bought with a price. So as Romans 6.1 says, should we continue in sin? No way. Meganoito. No way. Glorify God in your bodies, which belong now to God. As 1 Corinthians 3.23 says, you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God and you died, says Colossians 3.3, and your life is tucked away in Christ, in God. Perhaps even more to the point, now you might want to turn here at Romans 5.9, more to the point that I'm attempting to make today are two metonymies found in Romans 5.9. Following the awesome demonstration of God's unconditional love and limitless benevolence in Romans 5a, that while we were still sinners, that's shot through with sinfulness and in a state of sin, Christ died. The apostle to the pagans concludes then with an a fortiori argument, a much more. He says in verse 9, much more than being justified, we'll use the word for today, the passive participial form, the aorist participial passive form of tikaio, being justified by his blood. No, we're justified by our faith. No, we're justified by his blood, it says. Does it not say that? Being justified by his blood. Passive, God does the justifying. We do nothing. Passive voice. Indicative, the participle indicates that that's our status, and the aorist indicates that it's done. Much more than being justified by his blood. We could even say in his blood. We will be saved from wrath. And Paul uses the word wrath. He's speaking of that which the teacher says is waiting for you. Waiting for you pagans in the final judgment. If you don't get circumcised and get to it in the observance of the law, including the kosher laws, the table laws, the dietary laws, which Peter folded under that pressure in Acts in Antioch in the mixed church there as we talked about recently. Much more, we will be saved from wrath. He's talking about that which the teacher in Romans 1.18 says is coming for the pagans in the final judgment if they don't get down to observing the works of the law. So Paul says, much more than being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath Through him. Then in verse 10, even more emphatically, for if while we were 
enemies, we were reconciled. While we were enemies, we were reconciled. What? While we were dead, we were made alive. For by grace, you were saved, says Ephesians 2.5. By grace, you were saved through faithfulness, not yours, the faithfulness of the righteous one about whom God said in Habakkuk 2.4, my righteous one will live by his faithfulness, meaning Jesus Christ lives by resurrection because of his faithful death for the sins of the world. So God raised him for our justification. Who's our justification? Who's we there? Well, he says it's with the sins of the world, so he might meaning the world. If this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what was he doing on the cross? Then what has he done? He's taken away the sin of the world. That's why the angels say, holy, 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 Lord Sabaoth of the armies, the earth is filled with the glory of God. Not the earth will be, but the earth is. And that's going to become a starkly visible reality to us. This is where the battle is being fought right now. And I'm happy to be at the heart of that battle. If we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. What is being contradicted here? The justification by the works of the law versus the death of God's son, also known as the faithfulness of the son of God, also known as his obedience to the extent of death, also known as his blood, also known as by many other metonymies we won't explore today. So verse 10 of Romans 5, for if while we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself on Calvary. Believe me, Jesus said, I am in my father and my father is in me. And the father was in the son reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them according to 2 Corinthians 5.19. Why are we afraid to explore the immeasurable impact of the cross, as Lewis Sperry Chafer was afraid to do, and said so, and admitted it in volume three when he said, we ought not to go too far in our thinking, and I'm paraphrasing, about this immeasurable effect of the cross of Christ. Don't become bizarre now. Don't get weird and try to apply it to angels and principalities and powers like Paul did in Colossians 1, 16 to 20, and Ephesians 1.10 and Ephesians 4.10 and Ephesians 1.21 to 23 and in Philippians 2.9 to 11. Let's not do what Paul did who had the guts to faithfully explore the immeasurable and I say universal impact of the cross of Christ. The temptation to leave this form of doctrinal teaching does not come from God. The temptation to leave this form of teaching. I'm not talking about attendance in this church. I'm talking about leaving this form of teaching in Romans 6:17 that teaches this truth does not come from God. It comes from the God of this age who blinds the minds of the disbelieving or the hesitant to believe from the gospel of the glory of the Christ, a glory that is destined to fill the whole earth. Habakkuk 2:14. Look it up. 
Isaiah 11, 9, look it up. Isaiah 6, 3, look it up. Psalm 72, 19, look it up. This is God saying to the serpent, not look it up, but see that dust, lick it up. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's his resurrection. We are saved by his resurrection. So to say you're saved by grace is to say you've been saved by his resurrection. You have been reconciled by his death and you're saved from any possibility of future wrath threatened by the teacher by his life. Much more. It's all the Christ event. Paul is having having the justification antinomy is not justification by the works of the law versus justification by faith. It is justification by the works of the law versus the act of God in Christ that reconciled you while you were an enemy, made you alive while you were dead in sins. By grace, you were saved. And in Romans 4.16, it's a grace that rests upon faithfulness, that faithfulness being the faithfulness of the Son of God. There's some casualties in this battle. There's people that go through a thought test about this, and it's a thought test. And I brought that thought test to you on purpose so that you'd have to think. But they fail the thought test and leave the form of doctrine over to which God has delivered us. It's happening. I never take for granted any human faithfulness. I only depend on God's faithfulness which is often demonstrated in humans like you. So what's he talking about here? Saved by grace through the faithfulness of the righteous one, as Romans 1.17 says on the law. In it, the gospel is revealed the right act of God in saving us in Christ Jesus. Even as the scripture says, my righteous one shall live by his faithfulness. Habakkuk 2.4, also quoted in Hebrews 10.38, just before the writer to the Hebrews says, we're not like the cowards that draw back and away from this truth. We are those who believe and persevere in believing to the saving of the soul. That's us. I'm not going to, why withdraw back into perdition or the Adamic ontology, which is perishing? When you can go on forward with this doctrine and be propelled by this form of teaching, which shows the justifying effect of the cry of Christ's death and resurrection, not the justifying effect of a human act of faith. That is pathetic. Now then, what is Paul saying? Saved by his life, justified by his resurrection, reconciled by his death. Come on. That's something, you know what that is? God is choosing to reveal his son to you today, right now, right here, right here, right now, in a new and fresh way. Do you see this? If you don't now, you will. Are you having an insight? With me, it had a long and long period of labor. And it was a bloody, painful delivery. But it came, this insight came, it was born. Is not God pleased then to reveal his son to you in this way today? His justifying resurrection, 
is reconciling death. You were crucified with him, buried with him, raised with him, elevated with him, and seated with him in heavenly places. From there, you might be able to see with the angels that the whole world is filled with his glory. Now, there's one more gear that we have to hit. What if you had listened to the quitters who left this form of teaching, whom I have not replied against yet until now? What if you had listened to the quitters, to those who cower at a message of super grace and super abundant grace? What if you had listened to the cowards and the quitters and the men who followed their women and the women who followed their stupid men away from this form of teaching? I'm not talking about from this church, but I am talking about from this church if it's a departure from this form of teaching. What if you had listened? What if you had listened? To the quitters, to the whispers, to the when are you going to leave and have you left yet? And did you know he's teaching now that Jesus might have loved the whole world so much as to save them? Do you know that he's teaching that now? What a dangerous doctrine for our children. You know what? I almost say something. I do in my private moments sometimes and then. You say, do you rebound? Hell no, I don't rebound. What if you'd listen to him? What if you'd listen to your own old man, your own Adamic ontology who just can't handle this truth? What if you'd listen to his paleo man who can't bear this much grace? Or what if you had listened to sinister principalities and powers headed by the God of this age whose whole job is a countermission against the mission of the Son and the mission of the Spirit. As the mission of God is to reveal and unveil, the mission of the God of this age is to blind the minds and veil the minds of those who are hesitant to believe, including and especially Christians, disbelieving Christians, blinded to the what? The light of the gospel of the glory of the Christ, which is intended by God and destined by God to fill up the whole earth. Look it up in Habakkuk 2.14. Look it up in Psalm 72.19. Look it up in Isaiah 6.3 and again in Isaiah 11.9. Look it up. You can look it up and see the glory while the enemy looks at the dust and licks it up. I like that. I hate most bumper stickers, but I do like the one that used to be on some of the power cars that said, eat my dust. I like that one. That's a good one. That's what God said to the serpent. You're going to crawl on your belly the rest of your days and eat this dust. It's my dust. You eat it. Eat my dust. And God shall crush Satan under your feet shortly. According to Romans sixteen twenty, look it up. What if you'd listened to the great blinder, the great veiler instead of the unveiler? We are not of those who shrink back. That's cowardly. We're not those who shrink back into perishing again. That means back into the Adamic ontology where you try to justify yourself. And while you deceive yourself into thinking that you're of a special Calvinistic elect and God not only elected you, but he's just 
an infralapsarian view. He's just, he's not condemning people to hell. He's just letting them go there. But not me. I'm saying all this once again to show the antinomy, a form of dialectic of contradictory principles regarding the much fought over term justification. The biggest theological battle that's been fought in the past century is this one right here that I'm talking about right now. In Romans and Galatians, it's not an antinomy or an opposition between justification by faith and justification by works. It isn't works versus faith. But of justification by the faithful death and the resurrection of the Son of God versus justification by the human acts of the works of the law. It is not a faith versus works thing in Galatians and Romans, but a justifying faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, versus justification by the works of the law. And I want to show this. I asked you to turn here. I called Paul because I wanted to make sure I was getting him right on this. So Galatians 2.20 is what he said. I'm using a figure of speech here. I just want to make sure that you know that I have not had, well, I have had a psychotic break, but that, that it's not related to this. this. My psychotic break does not relate to the fact that I think I'm really calling Paul and worse, hearing back from him. But I can have a dialogue with him in the scriptures and get some answers. So I say, what do you say, Paul? In a day of titles, in a day when... Clergymen have to have titles. The apostle of so-and-so church or the apostle is another one. Or reverend so-and-so. Pastor Brown insists on being called the most holy reverend pastor. So I I don't know. I mean, I do that because that's what he says to call him. So I do. And uh, I remember coming down here first on our so-called team and having people say, I want to be called pastor. And I said, really? I don't. In a day of titles, it's interesting to look back at the apostle to the pagans who called himself Paul. Call me apostle. Can you imagine him saying that? I can't. So what do you say, Paul? What are you going to say when you meet Paul? You're going to genuflect and say, hey, apostle to the pagans. Or are you going to say, Paul, it's you. Galatians 2. If I'd kept on teaching like I used to teach with Paul, instead of evolving into this understanding of Paul, he probably would have slapped me upside the head and said, nice to see you. But in Galatians 2.20, I say, Paul says, and he's continuing his speech, I was crucified with Christ. But I, a new man, live, yet not I, the old man. Please notice that I'm just putting in some clarifications. What do you mean I live, yet not I live? It means I, a new man in Christ, live, but not I the old man in Adam. I was crucified with Christ, but I, a new man, live. Yet not I, the old man, but living in me is Christ. Living in me is Christ. The life that I, that's the new I, now live in my everyday existence, or in the flesh means the life that I, the new, the new man, lives in my everyday existence I live in participation with 
the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 4.25 again to stop and pause just for a moment. He was given over, handed over for our sins, handed over to death, which is the consequence of sins. He was handed over to death for us and he was for our sins, that is, for the forgiveness of our sins. And he was resurrected from the dead for our justification. So that means Romans 5.1 isn't saying, therefore, being justified by your human act of faith. It's saying, therefore, having been justified by the faithfulness of the Son of God, which is his resurrection from the dead after his faithful execution of the divine mission, you have peace with God now. Peace, which is reconciliation. Also, in John 3.16, God so loved the world. He loved the world so much. He gave his son. But the son so loved us that he gave himself willingly. He didn't disagree. He was obedient to the father's initiative of love. Paul then says, and this is the kicker for our message today. I live by the faithfulness of the son of God who loved me and gave himself over, meaning to death, for me. Romans 5.8 also gave himself over to death in obedience to God's benevolent intention and salvific initiative. And this is the love of Christ, which to know, as Pastor Brown actually said in his prayer today, this is the love of Christ, which to know is to be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the peak of Hill 19, 319, Ephesians, also known as Laodiceans 319. But here's the kicker in verse 21. I don't set aside, meaning I don't sideline like the teachers do in Galatia, or even stronger, nullify or declare invalid or to personally reject the grace of God. That's the justifying, saving grace of God compared to Romans 3.24, compared to Ephesians 2.5 to 8, where Paul didn't have to use justification language because he wasn't trying to defeat the misuse of justification language in Ephesians or in Colossians or in First and Second Thessalonians. But in Galatians, he said, I don't set aside the grace of God. Listen to what he says in the closing verse here. For if justification comes through observance of the law, then Christ died to no justifying purpose. What's contrasted here? The works of the law unto justification or the death of Christ for justification? That's the antinomy. That's what Paul is presenting over and against a law works gospel. Not your personal faith, but Christ's personal faithfulness to the extent of death for our sins, followed by resurrection for our justification. The justifying power of God is the justifying Christ event. You say, well, this might translate, we got to be careful, this might translate or relate to or result in a doctrine where everybody ends up getting saved. Well, that would be terrible. So in closing, do you see the opposition? 
Do you see the antinomy? Do you see the reason why I gave you a little vocabulary word today? Do you see the irreconcilable opposition of faith that it is not of faith for justification versus law works for justification? It is Christ's death undergone in obedience to the Father's great intention that all human beings be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth as it is embodied in Jesus Christ in 1 Timothy 2.4. Christ, the man Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and mankind. Not the Torah. If the Torah was the mediator between God and mankind, we'd have to fulfill the Torah. But Christ Jesus is the only mediator between us and the Father. And we're in Christ, the mediator who gave himself as a ransom for all, says 2.6 of 1 Timothy. See, the, the scales are starting to tilt away from a kind of reformational view. Now, I don't want to cheat the reformation out of, what, out of its due because not all reformation theologians believed justification by faith. They believed in a justification by grace, and we're just rounding that off a little bit. It is Christ's death undergone in obedience to the Father's great intention that all human beings be saved, that the world be saved, and come to the knowledge of the truth as it is embodied in Jesus. Therefore, it is his faithful death, his faithful blood, followed inevitably by his justifying resurrection that is being irreconcilably opposed in Galatians against teachers, plural, And in Romans, against the head honcho of all the teachers, the teacher, who is like if you were playing a game, you'd get to the level where you have to knock off the boss. That's what Romans does. You got to the level where you knock off the boss, and that's the teacher, who is motivated by Satan, under whose feet, Paul said to the Roman saints, will be crushed under your feet shortly. That means when I defeat the teacher's gospel that may try to get a hold of you, that did get a hold of the Galatians for a while, when that gospel is defeated by the blood of Christ, then the teacher will be defeated and so will his boss, the veiler of the truth of the gospel of the glory of the Christ, is undergoing defeat today. This is the reason why preachers of this truth are tempted, just like everybody else, to quit this path. Especially when you feel like a salmon swimming upstream, and there's only going to be a few of you that seem like they're going to keep going. And when you see some fall off, and then try to pull others away, that makes me as mad as hell. You want to go, go. You try to pull somebody away, you're dealing with a shepherd now, and I got a staff, and I will hit you on the skull with it because you are a wolf. Okay, that's enough. I guess we'll, I better, I better stop now before I say something I have to apologize for. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray that you'll simply rivet what I've tried to say today with stammering lips, rivet into our soul the true antinomy that's being demonstrated in Romans and Galatians. Because the upshot of the whole thing is Christ and him crucified.